0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy.
1: Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Bavik Shah and I am an associate professor at the Jefferson College of Pharmacy in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. With me today is Hunter Reese PharmD, BCPS from MetroHealth Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio, where he is a clinical specialist in emergency medicine. Thanks for joining me today, Hunter.
0: Thanks for having me, Bavik in ASHP. Certainly can't think of a more appropriate time to be bringing awareness to STIs as we begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel for the pandemic. And as well as we have some exciting updates to talk about. So can you tell us
1: a little bit about what the major update is from the new gonorrhea guidelines?
0: Yeah, sure. So the updates affect our standard treatment for gonorrhea as well as the standard impaired treatment for chlamydia infections. The recommended treatment of gonorrhea infections has changed from dual therapy of ceftriaxone 250 milligrams IM plus azithromycin 1000 milligrams PO for one dose um, to ceftriaxone 500 milligrams IM or it's 1000 milligrams if the patient is above 150 kilograms. Um, If empirically treating gonorrhea and chlamydia infection has not been ruled out, the recommended regimen is 500 milligrams of subtraxone IM plus doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice daily for seven days, unless the patient is pregnant. Then you would use azithromycin, 1,000 milligrams times one.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the rationale behind this change?
0: CDC actually cited several different factors behind the new recommendation. Dropping dual treatment was based on evidence showing a rapid increase in gonococcal azithromycin resistance in recent years in the United States. Additionally, they considered the harm of azithromycin on patients' microbiomes, as well as the potential to increase macrolide resistant and macrolide resistance in other pathogens. In sum, the view was that the decreasing benefit of the therapy really had no longer outweighed the risk. And the decision to increase the dose of cetrexin was based on pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic research rather than human efficacy trials. The modeling data referenced by the CDC showed that we need to hit right around five milligrams per kilogram in order to get the concentrations of the above the MIC consistently for 24 hours to eradicate the infection. This equates to around 500 milligrams in an average 80 to 100 kilogram patient, whereas our previous dose of 250 milligrams was hitting around three milligrams per kilogram at best. And finally, the doxycycline recommendation for empiric treatment of chlamydia in the setting of gonorrhea was due to a meta-analysis showing marginal superiority for doxycycline, as well as new data suggesting superiority for rectal tissue infections with chlamydia.
1: So this update came out in in mid-December, so can you tell us about what challenges have you had in in your experiences in your ER with implementing it? And what questions remain for you?
0: Yeah. So with the increase in the dose of ceftriaxone, that was really easy to get everybody on board with. We went and updated our order sets and changed those all over. So we haven't had much resistance and the transition was pretty seamless with that. The education and everything that went out, very smooth. The recommendation, however, to switch to doxycycline from azithromycin for the chlamydia infections has been met with a little bit more resistance, of course. And so we have concerns that patients will not pick up their prescriptions or be adhered for the full seven days of doxycycline treatment. And in certain circumstances, giving the azithromycin may make more sense for logistical reasons. But really, we are trying to educate our providers that doxycycline should be our preferred therapy for the majority of our non-pregnant patients for the reasons that we had cited. However, again, azithromycin may be more appropriate agent due to patient factors. So It's important to weigh those patient-specific factors and utilize a shared decision-making when deciding between those two regimens. But if all things are equal, we should definitely try to move towards using doxycycline.
1: So with the CDC sending out this update in mid-December about gonorrhea, I know there are other updates, uh, and so perhaps this was a, a bit of a teaser or trailer. Do you know what are some of the other updates that we ought to know about to be forthcoming? or that are anticipated to come?
0: Yeah, so the STI guidelines are anticipated to be updated sometime in 2021. CDC has a lot on their plate right now, though, so we forgive them, but hopefully they are updated this year. And I'm personally very interested to see the recommendations on mycoplasma genitalium testing and treatment. We recently started testing patients with recurrent symptoms of, um, had previously treated for STIs for mycoplasma in our emergency department. And we saw a somewhat high incidence, so much so that we did incorporate it into our STI consult agreement. It was included in the previous guidelines as an emerging STI and did not have much guidance on testing or treatment. So definitely will be one of the first pages I turn as the CDC updates their guidance with some new data that's been published. What about you? Do you have anything that um, you have forthcoming that you're anticipating that might apply to your practice?
1: Yeah, there's a, the CDC has a nice webinar that sort of previewed their their changes. And it's about a two-hour video uh, on YouTube. About an hour of it was a presentation and the second hour was a Q&A. And so there are a couple of things that jumped out at me, but the biggest changes were the ones that you already discussed, gonorrhea and chlamydia. But things that stood out to me were Pregnant women, the CDC cited that right now STIs are are ever increasing and it largely impacts men who have sex with men. But they also identified growing incidence of STIs in pregnant women, specifically congenital syphilis. So it was very interesting to see that they are expanding at what time points pregnant women get screened for syphilis. So they're recommending now that they get women get screened prenatally at the third trimester at twenty weeks specifically. In the previous guideline, it was at twenty-four to twenty-eight weeks, but they want it at twenty-eight weeks now. And again, at the time of delivery, and all of this is based upon the risk risk of the mom, and what risk factors she may have or engage in or the community she finds herself in in, and the overall prevalence of syphilis. So that was really fascinating to me. Another thing that sort of stood out to me was universal hep C testing for every pregnant woman with every pregnancy, again, where we're seeing an increasing prevalence of it. Uh, So this is something that I think pharmacists ought to know about the increased recommendations for their pregnant women pregnant patients. Another thing that sort of stood out to me was another driving force of the rising STIs is in adolescents. And so they are expanding language to be more permissive, to allow for gonorrhea and chlamydia, rectal and pharyngeal testing based on risk, which is uh, different than in the previous guideline. In terms of medications, I think with syphilis, there isn't Much change. The CDC recognized that there isn't much changes in syphilis treatment. There is an ongoing randomized controlled trial that they cited for early syphilis treatment of one versus three doses of benzathine penicillin, Uh, but that data isn't available yet. But they did uh, are expanding their penicillin allergy section, and so they're going to be talking more about differentiating between a penicillin allergy versus idiosyncratic reactions and. Discussing the use of penicillin as skin testing, using alternatives, even using an oral uh, challenge—things that we in the pharmacy community knew about anyway. Using beta lactams and sort of delabeling or verifying penicillin allergies. But it's nice to know that that this is this message is being reinforced. And the STI guidelines, especially with syphilis, where you know penicillin is our workhorse. So I'm looking forward to
0: that. I agree. There's some definitely some very interesting topic updates.
1: What do you think are some potential gaps in STI screening and testing that you think that that pharmacists can play in, especially in your role being in the ER
0: or ED, I should say? So being in the ED, definitely a a bit different when people are getting tested in the ED versus being tested um, at their primary care or something along those lines. So... There is guidance for when to screen patients from the CDC. The adherence to these screenings, though, can be low in certain groups or regions. For example, the men who have sex with men who are on PrEP should be screened regularly for HIV and STIs, and a large survey of the MSM population from 2017 to 2019 showed that while screening for GC and chlamydia occurs in urogenital specimens, rectal and pharyngeal sites are less likely to be collected. Additionally, certain regions are less likely to screen such groups, such as the Southeast U.S., where STIs are more common. Additionally, in patients who are high risk for HIV who do get screened, there are missed opportunities to screen for other STIs concurrently.
1: So my my last question for you is, you know, we can't, And an STI talk without talking about COVID, because that's the theme for the past 12 to 18 months. So can you tell us how has COVID impacted STI testing and care this past year? Has there been a decline in cases since, you know, we've been all on lockdown and presumably not engaging in activity that would spread STIs?
0: So I think this is definitely a really interesting and hot topic right now. So from our perspective I actually was pulling data for a quality improvement project on STIs and from our 2019 May through August compared to our 2020 May through August we had virtually no difference in positive STI results between those years which we found definitely pretty interesting however this could be affected by other EDs in the area closing kind of increasing our pool there So I would be interested to see across the United States if there would be some data looking into that. And then also looking into after we are outside the pandemic, what, you know, if we see increases compared to before. So definitely were some other impacts of COVID during this time. Primarily, we had the reagents were actually... There was like a lack of reagents to be able to actually complete these STI testing. So temporarily, my institution was actually having to send away our STIs to be batched at a different health system, which increased our result times from being our normal two to four days for results to 10 to 14 days for results. And this impacted many hospitals across the United States. So a delay in being able to notify and treat patients who weren't empirically treated definitely has an impact on those patients. So how we kind of handled this at my institution was that we communicated this to our ED providers and they shared that information with the patient that, you know, these results are not going to be back for a long period of time. And so depending on the patient, if they're being screened or if they had symptoms, you know, there's choices on empiric treatment or not. Um, Definitely we were supporting people getting empiric treatment more often whenever we had that time period where we were having results that were out to almost two weeks. However, that is now the testing shortage from our standpoint has actually improved dramatically. And I'm hoping that the same is true across the United States. I have heard that most institutions are kind of back to normal on that. But um, whenever we were ramping up the COVID testing initially, the STI test did suffer for sure.
1: Yeah, that's in- that's interesting how the reagents for one, one test were impacted negatively while everyone else was sort of ramping up COVID testing and how that increased your empiric treatment. Well, that, it's good to know that, you know, things are sort of back to normal. And I know that for a certain time, you know, there was an azithromycin shortage or, or supply chain issues, I should say, because, you know, they might've been using it for other reasons besides STIs and pneumonia. So I think that has resolved as well. So thank you, Hunter, for joining us today and discussing with us your insights on the CDC's updates to the STI guidelines and what is anticipated to come. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ACHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the credentialing privileging resource center the preceptor toolkit and forums such as the ASHP section of clinical specialists and scientists connect community, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays and join us here every Thursday, where we will be talking with an ASHP member, content matter expert on a variety of clinical topics.
0: Thank you for listening to ASHP Official